Good morning, Mission View. I can tell you one of the benefits of sitting up front, which I hadn't really thought about before until today, was hearing all of your lovely voices. So I know there are some of you, Scott Mickley, who like to sit in the very back of the church, um, but you're really messing out on a blessing. Um, just to hear you guys worship, I think the worship band, that was a, just an awesome set. Um, I want to be a little bit lazy and sit on a stool this morning. Part of that is uh, I'm not much of a preacher. I don't like telling grandiose stories. Um, consider myself more of a teacher, so let's uh, picture us going back to school. For those of you who are anxious to get out of school, I apologize. I'm going to subject you to it one more day, but um, that's, uh, that's my plan this morning. You know, when, when Steve about six weeks ago started uh, this session, family life session, uh, he, he actually said that his goal, and I'll quote him here, um, was to study how our position in Christ will reflect on our relationships with others. So how our understanding of what Christ has done for us and what he asks us to do in his word will impact our relationship with others. Um, we, we sat through five weeks, um, this being the sixth and final week of the series, but uh, Pastor Butch kicked us off, if you remember, in the very beginning uh, out of Colossians 3, gave us uh, 12 real practical uh, commands for the, for the Christian life. Um, Adam gave us some insight into a, a parent-child relationship. Uh, Pastor Steve then uh, spoke to wives about submission and respect, and then Pat Culpepper, uh, Culpepper laid down the law with, with us men and uh, just painted a beautiful picture of Christ and his love for the church um, as we should be loving our wives. Uh, last week, Steve got into um, just a message about leaders and, and what the leader's role is in the church, and today I'm going to hit on that a little bit, and then you're going to find the rest of the passage kind of picks up where... Um, where Pastor Butch started off, and there's just going to be a rapid-fire set of, of commands. So Butch, Butch uh, complained a little bit about having to fit 12 of them in. Um, I hate to tell you, we've got 17 of them this morning, and uh, you need to hold on to your seats, because as, as I was studying for this, a couple of my favorite worship pastor pastors um, covered this in about 13 messages over 13 weeks. So that's over 10 hours of teaching. Uh, I'm going to squeeze that into about three hours this morning. So if you can hang on with me, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, actually, I, I want to commend Jordan, too. I know Jordan is uh, somebody who, who works behind the scenes, Jordan Reese. He's got a hard job. Um, you know, as, as we prepare for these messages, I think God is, is teaching us things every day and giving us something else. And so I think every day this week, I reached out to Jordan and said, hey, Jordan, can you change this? Can you, can you change this? And up until yesterday, he, he, uh, he, he was accommodating. I didn't feel comfortable asking him this morning to change something. Um, so you're going to see a, 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 an outline of, of our scripture passage today, but instead of, of reading through that, and I apologize, I'd actually just like to read through the, the passage that we have before us. So I apologize. It won't be overhead, but hopefully you've got your Bibles or your cell phones with you. Um, we're going to be looking in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 today, um, verses 12 through 24. So if you can turn there, I want to read through, excuse me, I want to read through that. I forgot to start my timer, so the three hours starts now. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning of verse 3. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I had the privilege um, growing up to sit under a, a great Bible teacher. Um, he used to say that he thought portions of Scripture should be bound in shoe leather. Um, so why is there a funky picture of shoes behind me? Um, I, 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 oh, there, there will be. See, there you go. Um, Junior high, my first job, I got to walk a mile down Highland Avenue and go uh, to a little shoe shop called Little Joe's Shoe Shop and work for a second generation cobbler by the name of Joe DeMarco. And uh, men would bring in their worn out wingtips, much like the ones you see on the screen, where the leather had just been worn clear off the bottom. Now, I think that's lost a little bit of, of uh, reality for us today. All of our shoes now are treading rubber, right? We don't really get that. 
But shoes used to wear out, and you would bring them to a cobbler, and he'd resole them, and take them back out, and wear them down again. And so, my prayer is, is the verses this morning uh, will be an applied will be applied in our lives, much like um, an old leather pair of soles that will wear these out. A little bit of background: First um, Thessalonians, written by Paul, it's to a very young church. So Paul had just planted the church about a year previously. We read about it in Acts 17. Um, the letter is really wor- written as as encouragement. Um, he brings out some, some new doctrine. He teaches about the rapture, talks a lot about the second coming of the Lord. Um, the idea here is that as Christians, as we have that to look forward to, we have that future, hopefully that encourages us and, and allows us to, um, to live a life that's a blessing to others. And so he actually ends up, if, if you look just before this, uh, this passage in, in uh, verse 11 of chapter 5, he, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So this is a good church. They were already encouraging one another. These are just encouragements, further encouragements for a, for a great body. And I, I see Mission View as that today. So please take this as, as, uh, as further encouragement. Um, before we dive in, I'd, I'd like to say a prayer as, as we prepare our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Father. It shows us where we're going. Lord, we ask this morning, that, that you would illuminate your word, Father, that you would prepare our hearts, that you would help us to apply these things to our lives, Father. Help us to remove the distractions from our lives. Help us to focus on your word and hear what it is you would have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's take a look, beginning of verse 12. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13 first. I'll read it again. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So Steve kicked off the idea of this leader-congregation type relationship last week. I wanted to dig in a little bit further, and and, uh, if you were listening, he gave you a little bit of a um, a foretaste of what I wanted to do here. And and the New Testament, as you you look through it, there's really four four words that are used uh, for leaders in the church. Um, I want to run through them real quickly. The first word is elder. Um, it, it, it's actually the Greek word presbuteros. It's where we get our word Presbyterian from. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit some, some Greek words today. It's not because I want to sound smart. I guarantee you uh, Greek is more fresh in the mind of Adam than it is for me. So I'd allow him to do that. No, didn't do a lot of Greek. Oh, maybe Emily. Emily, if you want to check with Emily. So if I, I only took Spanish growing up. So my Greek sounds like Spanish sometimes. So please forgive me. Um, but I, I do that because, and, and I'll get to this toward the end of the message, but it's a way to study the scriptures. It's a way to really dig in and, and figure out what, what God was saying in the original Greek. And for those of you who have studied another language like Spanish, if you try to translate that perfectly literally into English, a lot of times it doesn't work and it sounds funny, right? So sometimes getting back to uh, the original Greek word, seeing where else it's used in scripture is, is beneficial. And so much like a teacher, that's what I've done a lot with this message this morning. So forgive me again, I'm not trying to sound overly smart. I'm just trying to point you to a way to, to study scripture some more. So again, first word being elder. Um, identifies a church leader as one who's characterized by spiritual maturity and wisdom. The second word in scripture is overseer, the Greek word episkopos. That's where we get our word episcopalian from. Uh, it adds the characteristics of spiritual oversight and spiritual authority. Then there's the word pastor, the one that we're probably most familiar with. That's what we look to Steve as. Um, the, the word actually means shepherd, right? So just as a shepherd would oversee and care for a flock, that's what we see in a pastor is one who's spiritually feeding and spiritually protecting the congregation. And then lastly, a lot of times, just a very general word, leader, um, and I'm not going to try and say that one because I've messed it up 16 times practicing, but it just literally means one who leads, one who's above you, before you, um, with attributes of, of spiritual discernment and guidance. Scripturally, I, I think all of these roles are really the, the, the one person, the one person, the leader. Um, some in practice, I think some churches actually create different offices, some different responsibilities. Um, leaders, based on their giftedness, may serve different roles. Um, but really, I'm going to use the word elder for consistency as we run through this this morning. But if, if we go back through all those words and summarize, basically an elder is one who's characterized by spiritual maturity, spiritual wisdom, spiritual oversight, spiritual authority. And one who spiritually feeds, spiritually protects, provides spiritual discernment of condition, and then spiritual guidance to a better place. So at Mission View, we've elected to be elder-led. We believe that that's really the only model that's uh, displayed in in Scripture and in Acts, Acts 14. 
Here practically, we've got four elders. Uh, we all work together. We all utilize the, the gifts that God has given us separately, um, but as a group. And uh, I, I like what Pastor Steve has said. Um, so Pastor Steve has said that as a lead pastor, he's both, not both, he is over, among, and under the elders. So practically, how does that, how does that work out? Well, Steve is, is the lead pastor. As he mentioned last week, he's, he's uh, the only one of the elders that's actually paid and on staff with the church, um, committed full-time to the ministry at Mission View. We obviously trust him and look to him for guidance. He sets a vision. He, he likes to, he sets the teaching schedule out. Um, and he's, he's responsible for the overall vision and the overall responsibility and, and supervision of our staff. And we as elders submit to him and his leadership in that, role, in, in that way. Um, he's also among us in that when we get together as, as elders at an elder meeting, uh, we're all equals. We're considering the needs of the church, the resources of the church, all of those things equally as an equal voice at the table. Um, and then as Steve always likes to remind himself, he's, he's also under the elders uh, in that we can fire him. Not that we've ever had that thought, um, but, but he does recognize that, that submission uh, to the elder board. So, so now that you understand a little bit more about those elders, let's look at what the passage says about their responsibilities. Uh, looking back at verses 12 and 13. So first of all, uh, the, elder, the, the leader, the elder, labors among you. So the first identifying mark of an elder um, literally means to work to the point of sweat and exhaustion. And for those of you who keep a close eye on Steve, um, I think you can attest to this. Uh, that's something that he's doing, but not just working, right? Working very hard and not just working hard, but working among you. It should be among the people, much like a shepherd is among the sheep, much like a loving father would be very involved in the lives uh, of his family. So that's number one. Number two is over you in the Lord. Now this one's a little bit, uh, a little bit hard to swallow sometimes because none of us like the idea of authority, right? The idea here being one to lead or to stand before or to attend to the needs of. It's often translated manage. And uh, actually, I want to look at 1 Timothy 3. So as you start to turn there, 1 Timothy 3 lays out uh, really the qualifications for an elder. And uh, Paul, in writing this passage, actually uses the same word here that is used in our passage, over you, and translates it manage. So 1 Timothy 3, we're in verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage, there's our word, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. For anyone who does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must, have, must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into, the, into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So the idea of manage there, a family much like uh, an elder would manage the affairs of a church. Now, with respect to authority, again, I, I know that we live in a, a society that, that naturally fights authority, and uh, in many cases, we should. It's, it's well-deserved because many of us, and I know Steve shared a little bit last week, about being in church relationships where elders have betrayed that trust. Um, I'm sure many of you have had a boss at work or somebody else who has betrayed that authority, that, that level of trust. Um, it's natural for us to ask, who is this person? What right do they have? What authority do they have? Why are they qualified? Well, I, I just wanted to say, I guess, um, we don't ask you to submit to the leadership of this church because of who we are. Um, that would be foolish. Um, we are all men just like you, common, um, with our own faults. Uh, with our own giftedness, um, but we, we each have, feel, have felt called to this ministry, and that calling has been confirmed uh, by others and, and by the other elders. Um, know that we fully accept the weight um, of knowing that it is we who will one day give an account to God for the decisions that we've made. Um, we don't take that lightly. Um, in fact, I, we, we pray about that every elders meeting for wisdom as, as we make decisions about God's resources, God's people, God's time, God's money. Um, we know that we'll be held accountable for those decisions one day. So I ask you to consider that. Um, so again, as elders, uh, we labor among you. We're over you in the Lord. Um, and then thirdly, we admonish you. Now, the, the word admonish, another not so nice word, um, it's kind of the opposite side of the coin from teaching. So whereas teaching is, is typically used for maybe imparting positive wisdom or truth, 
admonition has in view correction or warning. Um, it's the other side of teaching. Um, the idea is, well, how many times have we sat here in a message uh, with Steve preaching from God's word, been convicted by God's word and realized that we're here and God's word says we should be here. That, that's admonishment. That's, that's our job, not to admonish you from what we think or what we experience in life, but to provide admonishment from God's word. Um, and so, uh, if you were looking at the, uh, the passage in 1 Timothy, it's, it's funny. Most of those qualifications for an elder are character qualities. Um, the actual only skill that was required of an elder in that passage is the ability to teach. And so the elder is supposed to be able to discern God's word, present God's word, uh, and hopefully in a way that's easy to understand uh, and easy for you to realize, hey, wait a second, God's word says this, I'm going to go out and do that. Um, so while it may be natural for me to admonish you for continuing to root for the Browns every day or for uh, deifying LeBron James so soon after burning his jerseys in the street, what I'm actually called to do is to admonish you from God's word. And, uh, and that's what I hope to do this morning. Now, so those three responsibilities of the elder being clear, let's look um, at the responsibilities of the congregation. So I found something really interesting I want to read to you. Um, I know many a church survey has been conducted uh, where parishioners are asked, uh, what are the main reasons that people leave churches? And uh, without exception, the most common response is, well, I, I don't like the pastor. So that's, uh, if that's the case for you, I hope not because you're continuing to come, but uh, if that's the case for you, I found this really interesting article. So um, let me read it to you. It says, not long ago, a well-meaning group of laymen came from a neighboring church to see me. They wanted me to advise them on some convenient and painless method of getting rid of their pastor. I'm afraid, however, that I wasn't much help to them. At the time, I had not the occasion to give the matter serious thought. But since then, I have pondered the matter a great deal. And the next time anyone comes for advice on how to get rid of a pastor, here's what I'll tell them. Number one, look the pastor straight in the eye while he's preaching and say amen once in a while, and he'll preach himself to death. Number two, pat him on the back and brag on his good points, and he'll probably work himself to death. Number three, rededicate your life to Christ and ask the pastor for some job to do, preferably some lost people that you could win to Christ, and he'll die of heart failure. Number four, get the church to unite behind the pastor in prayer and he'll soon become so effective that some larger church will take him off your hands. Good, good recommendations, although not exactly what's in view today. But uh, let's look at uh, verses 12 and 13 again. Uh, responsibilities of the congregation, uh, to respect them. The Greek word here is a, it's a very common word, and I think I'll, I'll, I'll show it up here. But it's actually, I looked at a lot of popular translations, and, and I found a different translation in, in every, every one I looked at. So if you're sitting next to your spouse or somebody you know and they're using a different translation, uh, the word here is probably translated a little bit differently. So to help, again, I, I looked back in the Greek and I found it interesting. The, the Greek actually has two words for knowledge, much like it has three words for love. Um, so two words for knowledge. Um, one word, ginosko, suggests knowledge at inception or the progress of gaining knowledge. So it's the, the, the learning, it's the learning about somebody. But our word here is oida, and it actually means a fullness of knowledge. Um, so again, so several translations, respect, appreciate, recognize, know, acknowledge the elders. I, li I like appreciate, and I'm, I'm gonna use an example. So uh, I'm the, the new guy to the elder board. I'm an outsider. I was not part of the Maranatha family. Uh, my family and I moved here four years ago from California. Um, you can hold that against me later. Um, but Randy actually was one of the first people uh, I met. So first, Steve Hansen, who kindly invited us to a community group and got us plugged in, uh, and then Randy. And uh, I call Randy the mayor. Some of you may call him the mayor as well. He's not actually a mayor. Um, but what I noticed about Randy is he's just very genuine. He's very interested in, in, uh, in your life. And, and at first I'm thinking, man, this guy can't possibly care how my day was, or he can't possibly mean that he wants me to have a great week. Um, but the more and more you get to know Randy, you know that that's absolutely his heart. And so as you see him in the comments, as he's going table to table, he's not a PR guy. Trust me, he's not a marketing guy. That's not his job. That's not his gift. He just has a genuine care for people. And as I've gotten to know Randy over the years, I've seen that consistently manifest in his life, both in his family, in the church, and in business. I've had the privilege of, of working with, with Randy. Um, I'm a CFO. He's a banker. Those two people talk a lot in life. Um, and we've gotten to know each other outside of work. And, I, and I've seen a, a very consistent message 
and love in, in Randy's life. Um, that's what it means to get to know uh, your elder. And I would, I would encourage you to do that. We're all open and available. Uh, we love this flock um, and, and would love to get to know each of you even more. So number one, respect them, appreciate them. Number two, esteem them very highly in love. Um, so the what here is to esteem. It means to consider or think of how much? Very highly. So a lot of it. Esteem us highly. And that, that esteem should be characterized by love. Now the why, it's, it's not because we're good looking. It's not because we've got a great hairdo. It's not because we've earned it or something nice that we've done for you. Um, the idea here is because of their work. And that comes directly out of the, the, the scripture passage. Esteem them highly in love because of their work. Now, um, again, I, I want to use Steve as a, as a great example. Um, he's been very open and, and shared with us um, some of the trials and hardships that he's going through in life. Uh, and as somebody who's, who's had the privilege of walk, watching him very closely, I can assure you that he is working much harder than he should be, um, continuing to work for this body, for this ministry, for this congregation. So um, that in and of itself, I believe, uh, earns our esteem, deserves our esteem. All right, thirdly, be at peace among yourselves. Uh, let me tell you, there, there's nothing more grieving or distracting or difficult or painful um, than a church body in strife. And I, and I, I feel like I can speak um, honestly for Steve here. This is his character makeup. He is, he's very relational, very loving. I can tell you that as, as strife occurs in the church, Steve carries that burden. And uh, he cares for you. And not only strife, but he goes through whatever you're walking through in life. As you're walking through sickness, as you're walking through hardships at home, um, Steve carries those things on his shoulders, as, as do the rest of us. We pray often, every elders meeting, we pray for the needs of the body and those things that are pressing. Um, we do carry those things. And, and let me tell you, life, life has enough burden without unnecessary strife. So the idea here is to be at peace among yourselves. So I want to look at another verse, Hebrews uh, 13, 17. So as you turn there, um, Hebrews 13, 17, it's a parallel verse. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Again, uh, our accountability to God. But let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The idea here is try not to make their, their lives that much harder, right? Because the more efficient, the more effective they can be, not dealing about the he said, she said, or what about this, or what about that, or I don't like the music, or I don't like the color of the lights, um, helps us to focus on those things that are more pressing and more necessary uh, for the good of the body. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, relationship with others. Let's, uh, all right, so that being um, the passage on, on uh, the elder church relationship. Uh, I want to move now into verses 14 and 15. Um, and I apologize, we're going to move fairly quickly through some of these sections. Again, I'm trying to get a tree out of here in less than three hours. Um, focus on relationship with others. As we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, I, I kind of hate this, but I had to go there because how many of you have ever heard the church compared to Noah's Ark? It's kind of a not real fair comparison, but it goes something like this. If it, if it weren't for the storm on the outside, it would be hard to stand the stench on the inside. We, we don't want that to be the church. I, we don't feel that that is mission view. But, but I can tell you, sometimes we're people, right? We're all flawed. We're all sinful. Uh, there are things that happen in the church. And, and this passage of Scripture is, is really meant to encourage the body to come alongside those in the body that are struggling so there's kind of a, a quick list. It lists a, a characteristic or quality of people and then gives an encouragement on, on, on how we should be dealing with those people, how we should be helping those people. So we'll run through these fair, fairly quickly, but the, the first group being the idle. Um, uh, pastors love alliteration, so uh, I've got some W's in here as well. Uh, we'll call them the wayward. Um, the, the encouragement here is, is to admonish. The, the idea here is, so the, the analogy of the, the body is given all the time, right, um, for the church. If, if we cut a finger off and set it over on the side, how well is that finger going to do? Um, it's not going to thrive. It's not going to survive, right? So the idea here is that if, if, if we've seen somebody that, that has kind of taken themselves out of the game, somebody who's standing on the sideline, the idea here is to admonish them, to come alongside them and say, hey, come back into the fold, right? There, there's an idea there that this person has some giftedness, number one, that the church could benefit from. 
and the whole body of the church has a ton of giftedness that this person would benefit from. So let's admonish them, get them back into the fold. Number two, the faint-hearted or the worried, um, asking for encouragement. Now, again, th this isn't necessarily putting these people in, in, in a bad position or saying that these are the bad people in the church. I, I believe that these are things that happen to all of us uh, over the course of years in a church, right? We can all become idle. Um, let's make sure we don't, we don't confuse idleness with taking a break or withdrawing because some of that can be healthy. But, but we can all become faint-hearted, right? We can all become a little bit worried about situation. Life gets a little bit hard. So we're encouraged here to provide encouragement to those people that are worried. To the weak, we've been asked to give help. And I don't believe the, um, the meaning here is physically weak. I believe it's just spiritually weak. You're worn down. Life has just been too much lately. And uh, um, we're asked to come alongside and, and help those people, to bring them back to strength, right? Uh, that's what the body does so well. I've seen it so many times here at Mission View. Um, number four, the wearisome. Um, I use that. It's not, directly, uh, it's not directly in the scripture, but it says, be patient with them all. Who are we typically impatient with? Those that make us tired, those that continue to um, come back with the same complaint or the same need. Um, Christ asks for patience, right? Um, all right, number five, um, wicked. The wicked and the admonishment there, the, the encouragement there is to do good. Um, the whole idea there being, so repaying evil for good would be demonic, right? That's not something we would necessarily see. Uh, we're paying good for good, that's very humanly, but what we're being asked here to do is repay good for evil, right? That would be something divine that apart from Jesus would be very hard and not natural uh, for us to do, so. All right, moving on, verse 16. Um, I love this passage. I'm gonna try not to tarry here too long. Um, this is a great passage, and for those of you uh, who came in this morning or at any time in the last month have wondered what is God's will for my life, um, we're gonna get there right now. Verse uh, 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So the first verse, uh, seven, 16, sorry, rejoice always. I found this awesome definition of Christian joy. It says, Christian joy is the emotion springing from the deep down confidence of the Christian that God is in complete and perfect control of everything and will bring from it our good in time and our glory in eternity. Let me read that again. Definition of Christian joy. The emotion springing from the deep down confidence of the Christian that good, sorry, that God is in complete and perfect control of everything and will bring from it our good in time and our glory in eternity. See, it's not, a, it's not about a feeling on top of a feeling or an emotion on top of an emotion. It's a feeling on top of a fact, right? That fact is that God is in control. We may not be able to see it, we may, have, may not have any idea exactly what God is doing through this time, but God is in control, and that's where we find our joy. And so some of you may ask, well, what, what does that look like? Um, well, if you guys were here last week, anybody here last week, you saw that at least explained when Lee Marshall came up here and stood very openly and, and rawly and basically said, uh, we've got some stuff going on in our life that is really hard to handle right now. Um, but what did she say? She said, but we have joy because we know that God's got this. We can't see where this is going. We don't know exactly what the outcome is. But we've seen in the past, God's proven himself before. God is sovereign. We've seen him prove that. We know that to be true. And therefore, we can have joy that on the other side of this, um, we'll, we'll see what God has for us. Number two, pray without ceasing. Now, now, this isn't a literal command to be on our hands and knees 24 hours a day. That would just be impractical. It's not modeled in... It's not modeled by Paul or any of the apostles. We don't see them sitting in a room 24 hours a day and praying, right? I think the idea here, I, I, it's really a command to be in a constant and consistent attitude of prayer. I like the analogy of, of breathing, right? So all of you right now are not thinking about breathing. Your body's just doing it. As you slept last night, you didn't have to consciously think, I need to breathe. I think the idea here is that we're in such constant fellowship with God and we get to a point where God is so near to us and that relationship is so sound that everything that comes up in life throughout our day, throughout work, throughout school, there's, there's always, God is right there and we're talking to him about it. Um, it's, it, it becomes like breathing. Um, yeah, so quick Bible trivia. Um, I wanted to point out about this verse. Anybody know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? Anybody have it? 
Jesus wept. I hear that. That's awesome. That is the shortest verse in English. This is actually the shortest verse in Greek. So I thought I'd throw that out to you. Um, it's 14 letters. Uh, sorry. Jesus wept is 17 letters in the Greek. This one's 14 letters in the Greek. So, um, and there's one in Luke 20 that doesn't really say anything, but we're not counting that one. Um, all right. So number three, give thanks always. Uh, so being thankful really is, it's, it's the essence of Christianity. It's the essence of Christian living. Um, are you close to God and trusting in God's sovereignty? Then, then thankfulness is going to be just a natural outpouring or outflow um, from, from that belief. On, on the contrary, if, if God is far off, if, if you are trying to go through this life of your own strength or you're believing that everything just randomly happens, then there's really not much reason to give thanks because everything is chance, right? Um, but if we have God close and we really do believe in his sovereignty, that he cares for us, that he sent his son to die for us, then we have everything in the world uh, to be thankful about. And, and, I, and I love this because Paul closes this section with a statement, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I believe this statement attaches to all three of those commands, to be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. Um, and and that's, that's God's will for our life. I think... Um, I think we overcomplicate this sometimes, right? I think for us, it's all about our practical needs, right? So we want to know, is it God's will that I marry this person? Is it, is it God's will that I take this job? Is it God's will that I buy this house? Or should I buy this car? Um, should I go to this school? Should I study this major? And I think sometimes God's up there shaking his head at us because really what he wants us to do is get back to the basics. Um, I coached for a long time. Sometimes kids overcomplicate what they're supposed to be doing, right? Just let's just throw and catch the ball in baseball. It doesn't matter how you run the bases sometimes or when you hit a home run. Let's just do the basics. And I think what God is giving us right here is the absolute basics, right? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. If we're at a point in our relationship with Christ that those things are coming supernaturally to us, it's just happening. We're conversing with God. We're joyful. We're thankful about our situation. I think that's a pretty good indication of where we're at spiritually with God. And now this is mine. I'll step away from the scripture, but this is just one of my convictions. I believe that if you take that job or that job, God's going to bless you. What, what does he say in, in, in Psalms, right? That, uh, man, I got to look now because my brain is flowing. That's where I was going. Psalm 37 Four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of what? Your heart, right? So if we're in a great relationship with God and we're where God wants us to be, he's going to bless either decision. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not talking about sinful choices and whether, these, whether you're asking to do something sinful. But if, if you're in the will of God and, and you're asking him, and I'm not the romantic, but should I marry this person? If you guys are both believers and you love each other and you're committed to one another, guess what? God's going to bless that decision. Same thing with a job, right? If you've got two great job options on your, on your plate and you're just grinding it out going, God, I need you to tell me which job to take. If your relationship is right where God wants you to be, guess what? He's going to bless decision A and B. And I guarantee you, he's going to have two great outcomes no matter which decision that you make. There's going to be people there for you to bless no matter which decision that you make. So let's not, let's not overcomplicate this. Let's, let's make sure that we keep the basics, get the basics down um, when we're talking about God's will. All right, moving on to the next section. Let's see if I'm doing all right on time here, a little bit over. Um, call for discernment. This is a, a great section of scripture here. And, and I, let me, so it's verses 19 through 22. Let's read it real quick. Uh, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from, e from every form of evil. Now, I, I want to throw this quick side note out there. Um, we don't have time this morning to really dive into this, but I don't believe that these verses are specifically addressing charismatic gifts. Um, spirit, prophecy. Um, th there's no real great compelling reason to make that connection. There is that connection made in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and I think since 1 Corinthians 13 was written after this book. I think if Paul had meant to address those things, he would have done it similarly with the way that he did it in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, so let's not get too tripped up on some of these terms here. And I hope as we run through these, um, it'll make a little bit more sense, all right? So verse 19, do not quench the spirit. 
Uh, the word quench here gives the idea of, of putting out a fire. It's actually used that, that, that way in other portions of Scripture. The metaphor of, of the Holy Spirit as a fire is common throughout Scripture. Um, so I think the, the meaning here is very clear. It's, it's don't retard the Holy Spirit from burning actively in your life. It's don't do things that are going to suppress the Holy Spirit's voice uh, in your heart. Um, you know, I think of the worldly analogy of our conscience, right? And I hear, I hear Dory saying, are you my conscience? This whole idea of conscience, right? You can, you can harden your conscience, this idea that if you do things enough, you can forget that they're wrong. Um, to some degree, I think that happens with the Holy Spirit. We can be out of the word long enough. We can be away from God long enough that we start to tune those things out. We replace it with busyness and things in our life. And I'm pretty soon the, the, the Holy Spirit is just this really, well, he says it's a, it's a, it's a faint small, still voice, right? So if we're not quiet and listening to it, we may get to a point where, where we're unable to hear it, right? So this is a warning not to do that. Do not quench the spirit. Secondly, do not despise prophecies. Um, another one that we can get a little tripped up on here, but let's, if you look at the word prophecy, what it really means is what God has said. That's it. Simply prophecies are what God has said. Now we think of prophecies, we think of an Old Testament prophet hearing something special or unique from God and then basically speaking that to God's people for the first time. The word does mean that, but it can also mean just hearing God's word, what, what, what God has said in this book right here. These are all prophecies. These are God's words spoken to us in written form. So I believe this verse is just simply asking us not to despise God's word. Whether we're hearing that from the pulpit, whether we're reading that, whether we're listening to a message um, on the radio, don't neglect the word of God. This is our source of truth and uh, how else are we going to be able to discern truth from error? There's a great old Aaron Tippin song. Any country music fans out there? Great old Aaron Tippin song that says you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Yeah, that's the idea here. If we don't know what's in this book, if we don't know what truth is, how are we to discern error, right? All right, number three in that same vein, test everything. Greek word dokimazo means to test, examine, or prove everything. How many? Every, I mean, everything. What do we prove? Everything. Doesn't mean that, hey man, I read it on social media. It must be true, right? Or I read it on the internet, right? Or I saw it on TBN. The guy sounded real sincere, right? It must be truth. Or my friend. I've got a friend. Awesome person. She said this. He said this. It's, gotta be, it's true, right? I mean, I've seen it in his life. It must be true. Or how about the most dangerous? It sounded true. It sounds true, right? Think about what, what the devil did to Jesus when he was fasting in the wilderness. He threw a little bit of a truth at him, but then tried to twist it just a little bit, right? Just because it sounds true doesn't mean it is. We've got to take everything that we hear. And this verse says everything, test everything. Everything that we hear and put it against Scripture. Because this is truth, and this will tell us whether or not that which we are hearing actually is truth or error. Um, the last two I'll throw together, four and five, hold fast to what is good and abstain from evil. And why? Because evil hinders our fellowship with God, right? Um, the further we move away from God, the more that we're going to be able to rationalize error and sin and just further hinder that relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, we absolutely need discernment, especially today. Um, look, for every crazy idea out there, there is a following. I know I'm from California. Okay, trust me. Next time you're in California, in fact, my daughter's going there in a couple of weeks. Try this, okay? Grow your hair out in dreads, all right? Big, dirty, ugly dreads, big dreads. Throw a robe on. Go down to the beach, Venice Beach, Manhattan Beach, pick one. Go down to the beach. Talk all day about how you are Moses reincarnate. And I guarantee you, by the end of the day, you'll have 20 people following you. All right? I mean, it's, listen. Truth is not gauged by popularity or relevance, relevance to your friends, relevance to the culture. That is not the measuring stick for truth, right? God's word has to be our measuring stick for truth. I've got something scary to show you, so hopefully, I know it's not Halloween, um, but I've got something really scary to show you. If you look at this graph behind me, um, Gallup runs a poll every year. This is brand new, it just came out this month. And, and basically, it's, it's a question asking Americans about their view of the Bible. And for the first time in history, the percentage of people that believe that God's word is actually truth and can be taken literally has fallen below the number of people 
that believe it's a book of fables. So 26% of Americans believe that this is just as valid as Aesop's fables. And only 24% of people believe that this is God's spoken word that can be taken literally. We can't listen to the culture, okay? The culture is telling us this is a book of fables, right? Um, it's disheartening, it's scary, but that's the world that we live in. And if we, the church, are not grounded in this truth, 24 out of 100 people, that's us, 24 out of 100 people, if we're not grounded in this truth, who's going to tell the other 76? And dare I say that we as Christians are failing because that number is going down further and further and further. So that's a challenge for us this morning. And there's a whole branch of study um, called hermeneutics. Again, another class that maybe Emily was better at than than her spouse. But uh, it basically is how do we study... Sorry. Um, Sorry, you you opened the door with the last one. Um, It it has to do with how do we we study Scripture and interpret Scripture. And uh, again, whole college courses, you can probably major in it, I'm guessing. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw at you six of my rules. Again, this just scratches the surface. But if we want to discern properly and we want to discern truth in, in, in the Bible, I'm going to give you six quick points for studying the Bible. Um, all right, number one, work from the premise that the Bible alone is authoritative. This is the word of God, authoritative word of God, that this is our authority. That's basic Christian orthodoxy. It's the truth, it's the infallible word of God delivered to us, the saints, for instruction and encouragement. Those are things that we have to hold true. So number one, work from the premise that the Bible alone is authoritative. Number two, understand that nobody can fully understand or comprehend the meaning of the Bible unless they've been saved, right? Um, 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We need the Holy Spirit to interpret what we're reading in in the Word. So we must be born again. We must be saved. Number three, this is one of my favorite. When the literal sense of Scripture makes sense, seek no other sense. If, If what the Word says makes sense, don't try to read into it. Don't look for some alternate meaning. That's when we get off track. That's when things can get a little scary. Number four, the Bible best interprets itself. Scripture best explains Scripture. So, for example, I keep throwing these Greek words at you this morning. I I do that because those Greek words are used by other writers in Scripture and other places and can provide more context um, to what's going on, to what that word really means, to what God's really asking us to do. So the first place we should turn is always to Scripture. Where else is this idea talked about? Where else is this word used? Now, the Christian commentaries are a great resource, great resource. I'm not discouraging discouraging you from using those, but realize a lot of times, just like I did when I stood up and and stood over here, a lot of those commentaries are just somebody's opinion, somebody's life experience, and those can all be great things, but let's make sure that we don't elevate those things to the same level as Scripture. All right, where was I? Number five. Um, this is one of my pet peeves. Um, I don't want to knock the NIV. I tease my wife a lot for using the NIV. But if you're the older, the original NIV, great book. It's a great way to read scripture. What I'm saying here is when you're really digging in and studying the word, the, the NIV actually takes an approach to translating the Greek in a thought by thought. So it takes a, a whole passage of scripture in a thought, and then it translates it much broader into a thought in English. And when they do that, I think we lose some of the connection to the actual words. So it's a great way to read scripture. I just don't find it really as useful when you're actually studying and digging into what those words say. So my encouragement here is when you're actually studying, trying to figure out what the word says, um, choose one of the more literal translations. I've got a few listed up there. Um, And then lastly, um, always important to consider context. So both from a historical standpoint, what's the author, what's the time, who's the audience, Um, What what is he talking about in the context of the entire book? Um, And then both literary context as well, meaning look at the word in the context of the sentence, right? The sentence in context of the passage, the passage in context of the entire chapter or book, all right? The world definitely lacks discernment, um, and my prayer is that that would not be true of us. All right, we're going to hit the last section here. Um, I think I'm doing all right. I'm I'm a little ahead. All right, we're going to speed through this. Um, 23, we're going to talk about sanctification. 
Um, verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. The word sanctification, um, great word in the Bible used throughout, especially New Testament scripture. The, the idea here, and it's not a, a new idea, but the, the idea here is there's, there's actually a past, a present, and a, and a future aspect of sanctification. So I'm going to run through this, try and throw these at you fairly quickly. Number one, positionally sanctified. We, we also use the word justification. Um, it's something that happened in the past when we were saved. Um, it's when we were set apart from the world unto God through an instantaneous act of God's grace. Um, we call it being born again sometimes. Um, if you look quickly, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.1, sorry, 6.11, 1 Corinthians 6.11. Paul has just laid out a, a whole list of sinful behavior. He basically says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That word sanctified there, same word, same Greek word, but it's used in the past tense. We were sanctified, the point of our salvation. And then he, he gives us a synonym, justified. I love that word. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Something easy to remember. It's what happened to us at the moment of salvation. So positional sanctification. Number two, progressive sanctification or, or purification. And, and, and this is probably the more common use of the word. And this is the process where by daily we become more and more like Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, I had a, an old pastor that they used to say, uh, I'm in process and making progress. That's the whole idea. When we're saved positionally in Christ, it'd be great if God just flipped a switch and we were perfectly holy, right? Um, but that's not how he's designed it. There's this process of sanctification that we go through in life where God, little by little, chips away at the old self and gives us something new and better. Hopefully we hold on to those things and, and continue to make that progressive through life. Um, all right, I'm going to skip the verse and move on to the third phase, perfecting sanctification. Uh, or glorification. This is the future tense of the word sanctification. It represents effectively our positional sanctification when we were saved. We finally realize that when we are present with the Lord, whether that be at the rapture, the second coming, um, in heaven uh, upon death. So, so that's sanctification realized. We are then given a new body uh, and get to spend eternity with Christ apart from death and sin and hurt and pain. Um, and so in this case, um, Paul's actually, I believe, talking about the progressive sanctification in our, in, our, in, our, uh, in our scripture today, but I wanted to give you that sense of sanctification and its process in the believer's life. Um, so again, if we review that quickly, I think I've got a table because I couldn't get through one of these without a table. Um, I've got a table in here. So if you look at it, again, at, at the idea of sanctification, um, you can say, I have been sanctified, my positional sanctification, that is past tense. Uh, also called justification, and that saves us from the, or delivers us from the penalty of sin. Number two, I am being sanctified today in my daily walk. I am being sanctified. That's progressive sanctification. It's present tense. That's what happens. That's what is happening to us today as believers. Um, another great word, purification, the purification of the believer. I like to think of water being purified and the contaminants being slowly taken out. It's water the whole time, but that water becomes cleaner and cleaner and cleaner through the purification process. That's sanctification, progressive sanctification, which saves us or delivers us from the power of sin today in our daily lives. Sin is there, but we are no longer powerless to it. God is sanctifying us. Um, lastly, we will be sanctified, perfecting sanctification, future tense, also known as glorification. And ultimately, in that instance, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Sin will be gone altogether. And I love, as, as, as we look back at the verse, um, who performs the sanctification? Verse 23, it's God. It's not us. We're not doing this of our own might, of our own will. It's God. Um, and then what does he sanctify? I'm going I'm to stay away from whether man is two parts or three parts, but let's just agree that what he's saying here is God saves the whole man, right? He saves your spirit, your soul, and your body. He's interested in sanctifying the whole man. And then the best part of Scripture today, verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. God does it. It's God's responsibility. And here's a promise. Guess what? He's going to do it. So if we're struggling, if we're disappointed about where we're at, take your hands off. Give it back to God because he's told us right here. He's going to do it. All right? It's not up to us. It's God who's doing it.
Um, as we close today, what, I, what I'd really like to do, we've, we've had a really great series. So six weeks now talking about family life. We've looked back and, and uh, gone through all aspects of relations in the church. And, and as you're sitting here today, I want you to think. Maybe you're, you're still struggling to die to that old self. Um, maybe there's still some sinful behaviors that are hanging on and, and, and preventing you really from, from that sanctification process or from being all that God wants you to be. Butch covered that a bit in, uh, in Colossians. Or, or maybe there's some struggle in your parent-child relationship, perhaps your marriage relationship. You're struggling with the love and respect circle that, that Steve talked about. Maybe you're struggling to find peace here at church, whether it's with a leadership or with a fellow brother or sister or somebody that's just weighing on you. Maybe you're having a hard time fulfilling God's will for your life and you're, you're having a hard time with joy and thankfulness and peace. What I'd like to do is, is we're going to take about five minutes. The band will start playing. I want to lead you just in a time of silent prayer. Come before the Lord to, to, to end this worship session. And I'll, I'll just lead you into it. I'll be quiet for a minute so that you guys can pray and have a personal time with the Lord. And the band will keep playing. I'll do that twice. We'll have two times of prayer. And then the band's going to close us out for, uh, uh, with a worship song. All right? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for admonishing us through your word, Father. How you show us, Father, that sometimes we're here, but you need us to be there. Father, as we come before you this morning, and we think back about all the great instruction that we've received from your word over the last six weeks, Lord, we've felt that tugging on our heart. We've heard your word proclaimed. We've seen numerous instances, Father, where we're not where you would have us to be. So, Lord, we want to bring those things to you now. We want to come before you. We want to confess those areas in our life where we're just out of line with what you've asked us to do, who you've asked us to be. And so as we take this time of, of silent prayer, Lord, we want to lay those things at your feet, confess those imperfections and those sins, and ask you to change those things in our life. recognize your forgiveness, your enabling, the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, to work that sanctification out in our lives. Lord, it brings to mind just a heart of thankfulness. Lord, as we look just around at the blessings you've given us, Father, whether it's our own salvation, Father, a family, provision through work, friends, Father, just even your Holy Spirit, how you love us. Father, we've got so much to be thankful for. And as we continue to pray in this time, Lord, we want to recognize all of those things that we're thankful for, all that you've done for us in this life. Father, we want to thank you for who you are and what you've done. And so as we spend this time, Lord, we, we just thank you.